Our first reading comes from Romans chapter 13. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbors as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 18th chapter. Jesus said, If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. This is the Gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. It's that time of year where I may just start to sound like a broken record, even more than usual. Our texts even kind of seem that way, like they're repeating themselves. So like last week, we're continuing on roughly where we left off, and we're still in this months-long series from the book of Romans, because of to the Romans. And appropriate to this season, both it and our other readings keep addressing the same question. How are we to live as God's people in this in-between time, after Christ's ascension and awaiting his return? Now, this may sound like a no-brainer, saying it out loud, but Paul is very reminiscent of Jesus here. It's so close that I have to wonder why this reading from Romans is not paired with Matthew 22, 35-40. You know that story if you hear it. Jesus gets asked, which is the greatest of all the commandments? And his answer is to love God with all your heart, soul, and might. And the second, he says, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law hangs on these two, Jesus says. And elsewhere, at the concern that Jesus was overturning or tossing out or changing the laws of the Old Testament, he assured the critics that he wasn't there to abolish the law, 
but rather this is how you fulfill it. You could rather neatly connect those two ideas just by considering Jesus' interactions, but we don't really even have to do that because Paul puts them together rather explicitly. He writes that loving your neighbor, aside, you know, truly loving as in the kind that does no wrong, loving your neighbor is fulfilling the law. All the law, including the commandments. Paul lists a few of what we would call the Ten Commandments, but I suspect he meant, or at least he could have just as easily meant, all 630-something commandments found throughout the Old Testament. So we've got an argument that's simple and eloquent, maybe eloquent in its simplicity. The laws were given to the people who received them in a particular time, particular place, a context, so on. And those laws were meant to drive those people to love one another and love their neighbors. Even things that sound harsh or exclusionary or a little strange or arcane by today's standards. For those people, they were a push toward love. God was setting them on a path, a trajectory toward respecting human dignity, the sacredness of life, the value of creation in a way that people may not have without God's intervention. If the purpose of the law is therefore that people would love one another, the law is fulfilled when we do so. We still have God's law. We dissect the particularities of a given situation, but we have to go deeper than simply saying, well, here's a list of things you got to do, and here's a list of things you don't do. Let's take a quick look at one example of what I'm getting at, how the context and how to love may change. Levitical laws in particular, dealt with ritualistic purity. The closer you were going to be to the presence of God or something holy, let's just say if you were going to enter the temple, it would depend on a sense of spiritual cleanliness or dirtiness, if that was a good idea to go in there. And some of the rules varied. It would depend on which group you were in. So an obvious example would be priests who might go to the holiest of holies, the very presence of God, had to maintain the highest level of purity slash cleanliness. And some of the things that could make you pure or impure may seem a little strange to us today, but some of them seem awfully familiar. They have to do with familiar topics anyway, like hygiene and disease. Those who were suffering a sickness, depending on what it was, We'd have rules, right? They had rules, I should say. Maybe cover up their skin or cover their mouths or keep some distance or even segregate, go outside the camp, stay outside the community for some amount of time. In that context, as far as loving the neighbor, as in all the neighbors, the whole community, that was the most loving thing to do. It doesn't seem nice to the one who's excluded, but... Those who may bear some communicable illness or impurity keep their distance until they are at least less likely to share. Nowadays, with the advent of modern medicine, this is, of course, no longer the case. Now that infections can be managed, the spread of disease mitigated, we have a better understanding of what can and how it would spread and so on. Yeah, sure, some diseases still prompt isolation or a smaller form of that, like hospitalization, but that is reserved for particular cases. The 
point is, what is most loving for them and for our other neighbors will vary. With that context stuff in mind, let's pivot to the text we actually did get from Matthew instead of the one we didn't. And there's something here you may or may not find startling. It's startling that we have a set of instructions that have been taken and applied at face value with little to no change based on context. But it's not startling because, hey, if anyone could come up with such a set of rules, it would be Jesus, right? So maybe we could call this the Matthean model of conflict resolution. At least I bet that's what it would be called if some guy named Matthew wrote it down today. Jesus knows that no matter how well-intentioned you are, even if the majority of your community, your congregation, your church, is very well-intentioned, good people, there's bound to be some bad apples in the mix. There's bound to be miscommunications. There's bound to be conflict. There's bound to be a situation where one person feels harmed, offended, sinned against. So Jesus tells them how to handle that. First, speak to the offender directly. Seems obvious enough, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing we all know we probably should do, but usually don't want to do. Because what if it's awkward? Or what if they get offended? Or what if they think less of us going forward and we really just don't want any more problems? Maybe I'll let this one go. But again, we know that if you have an issue with someone, the person to talk to is them. This method assumes that you're in the right, lucky. <laughs> so if they don't listen, that means they won't be corrected. And now you move on to step two. Get a few people from the congregation and go to address it again. Now, for brevity's sake, I will just say that step two here is a balance between the first and third step. It still keeps things on the private side, but also starts to open the conflict up to public scrutiny. And it's there on that third step, the one where you bring the issue before the whole church, the whole community, only after trying to keep the matter private, or at least as private as possible, do we go ahead and let everyone know there's a concern here, a concern that I would like to see addressed. Again, this method assumes that you are in the right, but those of us living here and now in the practical world know that sometimes that isn't the case. And what's curious about this third step is that if you've pushed things this far, involved this many people, aired out your this much dirty laundry, what happens if it turns out you're wrong? People don't agree. Everyone is going to know. Then and only then, if the offender still won't get their act together, you put them outside the church. And then you regard them as a Gentile and a tax in other words, you put them in this category of neighbors that Jesus loves, Jesus called you to love, to reconcile with, if possible, so on. But you do keep them at a proverbial arm's length. You keep them on the outside where their sin, their offense, whatever it is they did, cannot cause any more harm. So what do you think? Is that a good model, or is there a better model to handle conflict resolution out there? Well, if there is a better model, it sure hasn't been tried nearly as many times. 
Because when I say this thing transcends context in a startling way, well, here's an example. Our model constitutions, like the basis of the constitution of each congregation in the ELCA, I'm sure this is true of a lot of other church traditions, includes this model as the means to resolve conflict in our churches. It's been tried billions of times. It shows how to love our fellow members even when there's a conflict. There's no gossiping here. Not supposed to be. When others are brought in, you risk exposing yourself as wrong. So hopefully that helps to prevent triangulation, another not-so-good practice where you go convince a third party to come in on your side. It never closes the door, forever at least, on anyone. It gives us permission to put distance between us and someone who may be destructive or dangerous, but it doesn't put them beyond redemption. And that last bit is key, because this model does prompt some cynicism, including that you end up loving someone by excluding them. But I think this is more about loving all your neighbors. And this is why I used the earlier example of ritual impurity or literal disease. When you wonder why, in some circumstances, reading over scripture and theology and so on, does God express grace in this circumstance and yet enacts justice in that? Is loving here but forsaking there? Shows mercy here but enacts punishment there? The answer is almost always this. Justice is an expression of mercy. Therefore, punishment is only enacted when it's for the sake of love. One is only excluded, whether we're talking about exclusion from a church community or exclusion in the afterlife. That exclusion only happens when it's for the sake of the welfare of others, when their inclusion would be dangerous or destructive, and therefore to love others, we exclude them. Finally, Jesus makes explicit what I suggested was implied a few weeks ago, broken record, the power to bind and the power to loose. Given to Peter in particular is a power of the church in general. And whenever two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, he promises to be present. Not only present, but God the Father will respond positively to those, the things they agree on to their prayers. No matter how small your numbers get, say as the result of some such conflict in the church, those who are really gathered still, really gathered in Jesus' name, as in, in earnest, considering the actual Jesus, following Jesus' teachings, trusting in his divinity and salvation, Jesus is right there with them. That's the gospel. Tacked on here at the end of our reading and at the end of this sermon, we are called to love so much that it hurts. Even if that means some relationships break down and to keep on giving, serving, loving, deliberating, discerning, and on and on, even with those relationships that are broken. But the upshot you know, to this big ask, this huge undertaking to which you've been called, the kind of thing nobody, it would seem, in their right mind, mind would do. The upshot is we find a community, 
a community in which we are also loved by others who are called to the same kind of mission. And together with us, loving one another and loving our neighbors, Christ promises to be present. And Christ's presence is worth more than you could ever be asked to give away, more than you could ever own or earn, much less give up. That's the gospel. Keep on loving. Keep on being loved. Christ is with us in that.